Good evening. It's great to see you. So it is very exciting for me to have the opportunity to introduce G. Willow Wilson, the writer of the Hugo Award-winning and New York Times best-selling series, Ms. Marvel. Um, here at Moraine, we spent the last year really digging into that text um, for our 2018-2019 One Book, One College selection. I've loved sharing this book with our campus because I saw in Kamala the struggles that we all face uh, from the time we are young through even adulthood to really think about who we are, learn about who we are and the responsibilities we hold to those around us. Um, Kamala's identity struggles are special though in some ways. There are things that we don't often see represented in pop culture or in comics especially. So the particularities of Kamala's journey are really important. She's the daughter of Pakistani immigrants, fiercely loyal to her family, but wanting independence for herself. She is Muslim, but still sorting out what faith means to her. She's a superhero, but also a student with schoolwork and friends. These complexities and contradictions are what make Kamala Khan the hero we wanna root for and just keep reading about. G. Willow Wilson has also brought her talent for writing intriguing complex characters to more than just Ms. Marvel though. She has written comics for DC, most recently writing the uh, incredible title of Wonder Woman, so that's very exciting. Um, Wilson has also written a couple of novels, winning the World Fantasy Award for her first novel, Alif the, the Unseen, and has a brand new title, The Bird King, just released this past March. She's also chronicled a bit of her spiritual journey in her memoir, The Butterfly Mosque. All of this is to say that things that you already probably know is that she is an incredible, multifaceted talent, and I am so pleased to welcome her to the stage this evening. Thank you for coming. Thank you so much, and uh, it's, it's really wonderful to be here, I had never before been to this part of the greater Chicago area, and it's been a real treat for me to um, be part of this community, to, to see not only this campus, but the, the greater community that supports it, to meet so many of the faculty here, and hear so many of the thoughtful and inquisitive, wonderful stories of the students as well, so it's a, it's a real treat for me to be here, and thank you for having me. Um, <clears throat> Kamala Khan's backstory is, is kind of interesting. One of the most common questions that I get from audiences, kind of no, no matter where I go and no matter what I talk about is, how did you pitch this character to Marvel, or how did you get Marvel to publish this book? And oddly, the answer is, I didn't. Her history begins about seven years ago now, when I had actually been taking a break of about a year from comics. I started out in comics writing kind of quirky fill-in superhero stuff. I did a couple of widely panned issues of Superman when the regular writer was sick. I'd done some spin-offs. I'd done some creator-owned work through Vertigo Comics. Uh, but at that point in time, I had been on the road for quite a while with my first novel, Aleph the Unseen, and I was quite pregnant and uh, sort of focusing on the fact that I, had, uh, that I had published two books and was going to have two babies in the course of two years, which I do not recommend, scheduling-wise, for anybody. Um, but that's how it panned out. And in the middle of all of this, out of the blue, I got a call from Sana Amanat and her then editor, Stephen Wacker, who at that point were working in the X-Men office at Marvel Comics. Sana and I had met several years earlier through a mutual friend, and uh, although we hadn't spoken very often, we had the unique camaraderie of being the only two Muslim women in the entirety of American superhero comics at that time. Uh, so it, it was kind of a weird bond. <laughs> we were also both from New Jersey, and we are the same age minus two months. I forget, I think I'm two months older. Um, so we had a lot of things in common, but we, we hadn't corresponded quite a bit or, or talked very often. So I was quite surprised to get this call from her saying the following, we would like to create a new young American Muslim superheroine from scratch, 
and put her on her own ongoing monthly comic book series. Would you help develop the character and write the book? And I had to sort of sit there for quite a while and be like, did I just hear what I thought I heard? Um, because I would never have in a million years had the guts to pitch that particular series. Uh, I was used to sort of being constantly on my guard, waiting for where kind of the next social media attack or actual death threat was going to come from. I learned very quickly starting my career in the aftermath of the Danish cartoon fiasco, uh, in which uh, a Danish, for those of you who are too young to remember, uh, a Danish newspaper published a bunch of very kind of ugly, low-key racist cartoons about the Prophet Muhammad, which occasioned a massive protest movement in the Middle East and, and in South Asia. Um, and the consensus in the comic book industry at the time, on both the left and the right, this, this is way before being woke was a thing, so the consensus on both the left and the right that there was no place for Muslims in comics. Being a Muslim and being in comics were two fundamentally incompatible things and that I had no business being there. And uh, so, you know, even when I did stories that were completely non-political, which was 99% of what I did, um, you know, it, I could just write an issue of, of Superman that was about Lois Lane going back to her hometown and sort of reminiscing and, and, you know, then at the end Superman comes and they kiss and that's it and they go away. It, things as innocuous and frankly not that great as that would occasion these little blips of, uh, this is pre-Twitter, but backlash from right-wing blogs, right-wing bloggers. Um, I'd get all kinds of weird hate mail, in before, this is before I made a separate email account, like a sane person um, that was public and had, you know, made it separate from my private one. Uh, but I would get all kinds of bizarre hate mail saying that th the best one that I ever got said that I was part of the, I'm going to try to do this in the sequence that it was in the letter, I can never get it exactly right, but part of the Muslim homosexual socialist attack on American values and I was like, wow, that is not a real thing. But it sounds fantastic. Um, <laughs> and it wasn't, but it was all sorts of stuff like that. It was just the weirdest, most sort of off-the-wall, conspiracy-minded stuff. Um, and as, the, as a result of that, I tried to lay kind of low, not take super political projects, um, stay out of, out of sight in certain ways, uh, and so to, to be asked to take on a project like this from Marvel, no less, was, was quite stunning to me. Um, and I, I said to Sana and Steve at the time, you're going to have to hire an intern just to open all the hate mail. Like, just hire them right now. Uh, nevertheless, I was intrigued. I thought, do they know what they're getting into? This is, this is kind of unbelievable. I was used to being told no quite frequently in my career, short career at that time, writing superheroes. Um, typically when you're writing superheroes for a big comic book publisher, there are very narrow railings that you have to kind of operate between because it's a shared universe. You're not the only person writing this character. They appear in multiple books every month. Uh, there are corporate considerations to take into account. So you, you have to kind of be aware of the politics of that. Uh, certain characters have very specific continuity issues. They might be alive and well in one timeline, but dead and zombified in another. Or, you know, maybe their brain has been downloaded into a robot and you kind of have to deal with that. So it's a lot of moving parts and it was very difficult as a result to tell a whole story. Additionally, the prevailing wisdom at that time was that certain kinds of books do not sell. And it went like this. Number one, new characters don't sell. Uh, it had been ages since a new superhero had been successfully launched on their own book. There were some superheroes who were kind of sidekicks and who showed up in the books of more prominent superheroes, and those were fine. But inventing a new superhero and immediately putting them on their own book, giving them their own story, was considered 
kind of a kiss of death, that it would not sell. So new characters don't sell, female characters don't sell. Uh, this was the wisdom at the time. They say, you know, does She-Hulk sell as well as Hulk? No. Does Supergirl sell as well as Superman? No. How about Batwoman? Name something. Um, and also that minority characters didn't sell well. So this was kind of the trifecta of death from a sales perspective in the minds of a lot of superhero comic handicappers at the time. This was a new female minority superhero who was immediately going on to her own book. Um, and yet here was Marvel saying like, yes, we want to do this. Are you on board? And though I was initially hesitant, there was no way I was going to turn down something like that. It was, it was just too interesting to see where it was all going to go. So of course I said yes. And Sana and I got to work kind of creating the backstory of the character who would eventually become Kamala Khan. And it was not as easy as I assumed it would be. I grew up reading superhero comics. I was a big X-Men nerd as a kid. Uh, those of you who, like me, were tweens in the 90s can probably hum the theme song of the X-Men cartoon that was on Fox Kids every Saturday morning. I was obsessed. I started writing uh, what now we would call fanfic, starting maybe at age 11, about, uh, about the X-Men. Um, yet I had never dealt with creating a superhero from the ground up. I had always uh, write, I had always written superheroes that had extensive backstories already. In some cases, like, like Superman, 80 years worth of backstories. And I had no appreciation for just how difficult it is to create a character from the ground up that way. To create not only the person, but the power set, the backstory, how do their powers work? Do they tell the people in their lives? Are they kind of open about who and what they are, like Wonder Woman is? Or do they hide it and have a dual identity, like Spider-Man or like Superman? And if so, why? What motivates them? What is their family like? What makes them who they are? Do they have a tragic backstory or a happy backstory? How does that inform their mission as a superhero? And what are the physics of it all? I had kind of accepted that, you know, superheroes were a world in which one had to suspend disbelief and understand that physics and, and chemistry and the laws of time and space really didn't apply. Yet I'd never tried to make up the pseudoscience that goes into a superhero power set. If you are a big comic book geek, you'll know that for each uh, super superhero, no matter how improbable their powers are, there's some like gobbledygook non-science that goes along with explaining how it works. And people have become very attached to that, whatever it is, uh, even if it makes no sense whatsoever. And so having to sort of sit down and think about, well, if we give her this power set, what kind of faux science can we associate with that? And how would it play out? And, and how would that look? What kind of costume should she have? Uh, you know, is she going to be one of these characters who sort of puts on a lot of makeup or a wig or wears a mask? Uh, and each one of those elements is deeply symbolic in some way and is going to affect the way that you tell that story. And it took, I thought, oh, this will be like a side project. You know, in six weeks, Sana and I will have worked out this whole backstory and, uh, you know, we'll be off to the races and, and we can all start writing. Uh, it took us a solid year and a half. <laughs> of back and forth and emails and long philosophical conversations on the phone before we arrived at the character that you know uh, today. And uh, it, it gave me really a new appreciation for a lot of the characters that I'd grown up knowing and loving and just sort of ex uh, um, accepted as being these complete thoughts who kind of came into the world as complete thoughts. And uh, now I knew for certain that, that they were the result of a lot of uh, hard work and, and, and labor. Um, and, you know, through that process, it was, it was Sana who was the one who suggested, you know what, to give this character a better chance of survival, let's attach her in some way to a legacy, a superhero legacy that already exists in the Marvel Universe. Because we had gone back and forth. Should we give her a completely new name? Um, and if so, what should that be? But Sana was the one who eventually thought, you know what, 
if we connect her to another female superhero in the Marvel Universe who is deeply beloved, who has a really enthusiastic fan base, maybe we can keep this series alive a little bit longer. Our goal was to get to 10 issues. That was, that was sort of the plan. We would get, if we could get to that, that would be two trade paperbacks, two collected editions. And that to us seemed like a pretty reasonable goal. Uh, at that point, there were plenty of series that would get canned after five issues if they didn't do well sales-wise. So we were like, 10 is, 10 is admirable. 10, we can pat ourselves on the back, go home, go back to what we had always been doing, and say, okay, well, we kept it alive for a year. Um, so the idea to call this character Ms. Marvel came from Sana. A couple of years earlier, the former Ms. Marvel, Carol Danvers, who you may know from the giant billion dollar earning movie that just came out a few weeks ago, starring Brie Larson, uh, had been reinvented and sort of remade from her original 70s incarnation as Ms. Marvel and given the title Captain Marvel to reflect her position in the Air Force. And that had been a real unexpected hit at Marvel Comics. Uh, it was one of those things which for Kelly Sue DeConnick and, and the other creators who worked on that book was, was going to be kind of a fun side project and instead turned into a calling. And the fan base was committed and wonderful. And Sana thought, you know what? Because the former Ms. Marvel is now Captain Marvel, the title Ms. Marvel is now vacant. And that seems like kind of a perfect mantle, the perfect legacy for a new character to take on in this universe. Uh, and I said, you know what, sure, that sounds, that sounds great, let's do that. Anything to, to just sort of keep it alive <laughs> will, be, will be fantastic. And so we kind of started hammering out what became the first story arc of this series, which you read now as a collected edition, volume one of the first, I think, five or six issues. Um, and we, we kind of sent it out into the world, unsure of what was going to happen. We had to tread very carefully, and we realized that, because there really had never been a character quite like this in the Marvel Universe. There had been other Muslim characters in the Marvel canon, um, but they had been quite secular. Uh, their faith had never been a, a large part of their backstory. In a, in a couple of cases, their faith was kind of tacked on afterwards. It's like, oh, well, we need a Muslim character here. Let's just retcon this one and say that she's been Muslim this whole time. So, you know, we never really see them practicing their faith. We never really see where it comes from, what it looks like. Um, and so there really was no guideline, no guideposts, nobody who had gone before to show us where the fault lines were and, you know, the, what should we should avoid and what we should include. So we were asking ourselves questions like, you know, well, in, in, in a regular Muslim household, you would expect to see a bismillah or some calligraphy or verses of the Quran and stuff hanging on the wall. But if we put that in this book, are more orthodox traditional Muslims going to get upset because that means people are going to be holding the word of God who might not be, uh, you know, on wudu, not be ritually pure at that time? Are they going to chuck it in the garbage when they're done and dispose of it improperly? So you'll notice, in, especially in, in the first arc, that the walls of the Khan household are basically bare uh, for that reason. And you know, it was just all kinds of things where we had to consider issues that, that nobody else writing superhero comics had really had to grapple with before. And we kind of sent it out into the world quite nervously, thinking, is, is this going to tank? Are we going to you know, hold up our end of the bargain on this? Or is it just going to be a massive failure? Um, but Sana was always the one who kind of was, was optimistic when I got scared. This is in many ways a reflection of her own childhood, uh, growing up as a Pakistani-American kind of geeky girl in New Jersey. And a lot of our conversations were me just sort of being very quiet and listening and, uh, you know, trying to replicate as best I could the stories that she was telling um, in, during the co-creation process. And so she, you know, when I would get scared and say like, oh my God, what are we getting ourselves into? It's, it's, it's going to be a bloodbath on Twitter. I can already see it coming. Uh, and she would be the one who would say, no, you know, like, just, just think 10 issues. It's not like she would, they're going to put her on the Avengers and we'd both crack up laughing. Um, because that seemed like just several bridges too far. So when we did send it out into the world, 
we were both quite surprised when the first issue went into a second printing, and then into a third printing, and then into a fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth printing, and became one of the best-selling issue ones of all time at Marvel Comics of any comic ever. <laughs> and much less did we expect to see fans of this character cosplaying her in costumes that they had made and sewn themselves at conventions barely three weeks after the first issue came out. Or that the first collected edition, the one that you have read as a community, would end up debuting on the New York Times bestseller list for graphic books. And then the second one would end up on the New York Times bestseller list for graphic books. And then the third one would end up on the New York Times bestseller list for graphic books. And, you know, the only reason that subsequent ones didn't end up on that list was because they stopped creating that list. <laughs> There's no longer a New York Times graphic list bestseller book, a uh, bestseller list. So, um, sadly for me. But it was phenomenal to me to sit back and say, oh my God, we did it. This, this thing that was not supposed to live for more than 10 issues that was just going to be a fun side project for all of us that we would spend a few months on and then shelve and put away and move on to other things. This is real. That she, this, this character that Sana and I created is going to outlive us. And that, that benchmark that we had set for ourselves, well, it's not like they're going to put her on the Avengers, ha, 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 this is hilarious. That within 14 months of this book coming out, that she would be in the main Avengers title as an Avenger. Um, and then show up in the, in the fun uh, video game that possibly you have played. It, 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 was, it was something that kind of rearranged how I thought about what I do, how I thought about being a comic book geek, how I thought about this community. And what it really taught me was that you never know what story will resonate with whom. I think Sana and I, when we were creating this character, were thinking this will be something fun for Muslim kids. Uh, you know, which is a sizable population when you look at it from a big point of view, um, but not a sizable population within the comic book reading audience, uh, at least at that time, that has changed. But uh, we, we sort of didn't expect that we would get fan mail and people coming up and crying at conventions who had grown up Mormon or Orthodox Jewish, or I remember, this is a story I love to tell, at one of the first signings I did of this series in Boulder, Colorado, uh, this guy came in who was about six feet tall and very blonde and blue-eyed and looked just kind of like a Viking or a linebacker or possibly a Viking linebacker, and um, came up to me with tears in his eyes and said, I was Kamala as a kid. And I was like, wow, really? Tell me about that. Um, and he said, well, my parents are Polish immigrants, and I had an accent as a young kid that took a while to fade, and I didn't take peanut butter and jelly sandwiches to school as a kid. You know, I took my mom's cooking and leftovers, and I was made fun of, and I just felt like such an isolated case in my class, and nobody else understood. Uh, and reading this, I see, oh my God, that's how it was for her, too. So it, it, it really drove home for me that it's never obvious what people are carrying. Sometimes we look at people and we think we can read them, we think we know what their story is, and we don't. And just like so many kids from so many different backgrounds grew up seeing bits of themselves in Spider-Man, or in Batman, or in Captain America, that same general audience could look in and see parts of themselves in this character too. That there really is no such thing as niche. That all characters have something to say to that wider audience that is valuable and gives that audience something to take away and hopefully enriches their lives in some way. And it, it changed the way I thought about storytelling as well. That there are pieces of us in everything that we make. There are pieces of us in everything that we read. All of those things contribute to the picture that we have in our minds about who we are and our worth in our own communities. 
and uh, the possibilities that are there for us uh, in the world. So it's, it's been an amazing five years with this character, um, meeting the readers, crafting new stories, trying to figure out what's next, watching the tremendous fan response and the communities that have accepted her as one of theirs, seeing the cosplayers, seeing the evolution of the cosplayers, uh, who at the very beginning all would show up at conventions wearing these costumes that they made by hand on their sewing machines and with puffy paint, kind of like Kamala does in the series, uh, to now showing up with costumes that they bought at Target, because you can buy Miss Marvel costumes at Target. Uh, this is one of those, I never thought I would see the day moments, and I pinch myself. Uh, the answer to the question you're thinking is, no, I do not get any of that residual money. I wish I did. Um, I would have, you know, come here in a much fancier airplane if that was the case. Um, but to, to see that evolution has been the greatest honor of my life. And I've sort of come to accept that this, this may be the highlight, that I may have peaked at 35. <laughs> um, and, and, that, and being okay with that. And about a year and a half ago, I, I did sort of start to get the impression when I sat down to write a new issue of Ms. Marvel that I was in danger of repeating myself. And that to me became a sign that this series was so much bigger than anything Sana and I could ever have envisioned when we started out that I now had to think about what the legacy of this character was going to be going forward. I knew that there were stories about her that I was very poorly equipped to tell. Uh, and that other people who had grown up in immigrant communities, who had grown up Muslim, who had had very different experiences of being Muslim in America, could tell those stories much better than I could. And that now that this character had grown so much bigger than the people who created her, it was probably time for me to plan my exit, knowing that this, this is something that is going to live well beyond the stories that I was going to tell about her. So I called Sana and I told her, I think it's time. And uh, we, we both lost it a little bit <laughs> in that phone call. Uh, you know, I was not expecting it to be as emotional as it was, but it, it really sort of drove home to me that we had been in the trenches for five years. And uh, you know, that, that had sort of created a bond that I think is, is probably gonna last a lifetime. Uh, and then I called up the wonderful Saladin Ahmad, who is the writer of Black Bolt, fresh off of its Hugo Award win, and the wonderful fantasy prose novel, Throne of the Crescent Moon, and was like, there is one person working in superhero comics at the big two right now who I think could take on this series, and it is you. Please say yes, because we have no second choice. Um, and thankfully, wonderfully, he said yes. And so I prepared to step away put this character in the hands of a new creative team who would take her into the future, tell those stories that were beyond what I could tell, and create that legacy that a new generation would, would be able to have going forward. Um, and I did so without really an exit strategy. I was like, you know what, it, it, it's time. The most important thing is to do the right thing for this character, for this fandom, and for this community. And so I didn't really think about, well, what the heck is going to be my job after this? How do I follow this? You know, this, this very unexpected, amazing thing that's happened in my life. Um, so I just sort of sat with it and was like, wow, I, I have just made myself effectively jobless. I, uh, I kind of had a, you know, a creator-owned book on the horizon with the, the wonderful Christian Ward coming out from Dark Horse. Uh, and I was writing a novel, but that kind of month-to-month deadline, that month-to-month -month job, I just, uh, I'd, I'd effectively just made myself, uh, um, uh, yeah, jobless at the point. And I thought, well, you know what? It is what it is, and I'll just sort of see what happens next. And if this was the right thing to do, a new opportunity will present itself. And 48 hours after I'd had that initial conversation with Sana and then with Saladin, I got a call out of the blue from DC and I'd worked, I'd done some work with DC in the past. I'd done some fill-in issues of Superman and some things at Vertigo, but all of the editors basically that I knew there had, had moved on to other things and I didn't have any firm contacts. 
Um, but I got this call from editor Chris Conroy, uh, who at that time was in the Superman office, who I had never met before. And he said, I know you're really busy with this Marvel, but I have a question. Do you have the bandwidth to write Wonder Woman? And I was like, as a matter of fact, as of this moment, I do. <laughs> and it was just one of those wonderfully serendipitous things that I tend to think only happen in comics, where nothing works the way that you think it should, and yet everything works out. Um, and so I found myself swiftly on, uh, on another iconic female superhero with another legacy, this one much, much older, uh, and uh, trying to take that one into the future. So for me, this, this time, literally this time, this, this week, this month, this moment right here with all of you guys is, is tremendously poignant because my last issue of Ms. Marvel came out about a month ago. Saladin's first issue came out about two weeks ago. And uh, my first issue of, of Wonder Woman came out. So it's, it's a time of tremendous transition. And it's just so wonderful to me to know that Kamala is in such good hands, that she has resonated with so many of you, and that she will live on not just 10 issues from now, but 10 years from now, and quite possibly 50 years from now. Uh, you know, unless we've all fried to a crisp on this swiftly warming planet. So, and that's really not due to anything in particular that I have done. I think that we could have written the same series 10 years ago and that old industry logic would have held that she was a trifecta of death of the things that don't sell and we would have gone 10 issues and that would have been it. But what has changed is not the way that I write, not the way that big giant entertainment companies function, it's the audience. The audience was ready for this book and it was the audience that made it a best-selling comic book and embraced it and made this character not just a character but a symbol of protest and of love which means that this isn't really my story at all it's yours so thank you i think there are microphones for questions are we on here we go um, so we're opening it up to questions. I'm going to pass the microphone off to Troy in just a second. And we have another microphone on this side. So if you have questions for, um, for Willow, just raise your hand, and I'll point you out, and one of the microphones will get to you. Hi. Hello. Hi. It's uh, nice to have you. It's an honor being in your presence. I've been reading Miss Marvel for two, two years now. Um, and I'm also a writer myself, and it's hard. It's hard. How did you go from the random ideas that were in the cloud and then put it on paper and then make it cohesive? Like, what was the biggest hurdle in getting that together? Like, the series of events that led to her going from you know, f yeah. discovering her powers and then discovering her identity and claiming her name and all that good stuff. Well, I think w with superheroes, there are kind of several templates that have emerged over the course of the past century um, that, that, you can c that kind of shape the story that you tell going forward. The origin story shapes all subsequent stories. Um, and with, with Kamala, in the case of Kamala, the template that we were trying to channel was Spider-Man's template. Because there are a bunch of different ways you can go. You know, the, the story of Superman, which is also kind of the story of Harry Potter and of a lot of, uh, you know, other stories, is ordinary guy in an ordinary world, having a very ordinary life, who suddenly discovers that he is heir to some great alien empire of power or magical world or what have you. That's one story, the hidden king. Uh, and then there's kind of the Batman story, which is the anti-hero story, somebody who starts out with everything and then loses it through some tragic means and then kind of lives in the shadows to serve the light. That's your Batman, that's your Daredevil, that's all of kind of that, that group of heroes. And then there are your, your Spider-Mans, Spider-Men, um, who are ordinary people who come by their powers through accident, 
They're not so part of some kind of hidden aristocracy or heir to, to an alien legacy. Uh, they're just genuine, ordinary, kind of, you know, working class, middle class people who happen to get bit by radioactive spiders, uh, et cetera, and then have to make a decision. Do they go on with their ordinary lives? Do they lead a double life? How do they use these powers that have come to them very unexpectedly? And that was kind of the template that we were interested in for Ms. Marvel. We, we wanted her to be an everyman, or rather an everywoman kind of character, simply because it's so easy to, to see oneself in that story. I don't know what it's like to be Superman. I will never be as rich as Batman. That's his superpower, being a billionaire. Um, you know, like, it, it, there's a lot in that, than those stories that I love, but that I don't identify with. Uh, but the story of a Spider-Man, a Peter Parker, or of, you know, a Kamala Khan, that's also why we did the alliterative name, is something that I can kind of understand. Like, yeah, if I got bitten by a radioactive spider or wandered into a pterogen mist and woke up with powers one day, you know, these would be questions that I would ask myself. What do I do now? Uh, maybe, you know, because I don't have, you know, a, a bunch of security apparatus like Iron Man to protect myself, uh, maybe I should sort of have a dual identity so that I don't drag in people who I can't protect, the people who I love who are going to be in the line of fire now that I'm this superhero. So it, it was kind of choosing what kind of superhero arc we wanted this, this story to follow, and then thinking about, well, how would that be different for this particular character? What makes this particular character's story unique? Uh, what drives her? And so, yeah, a, a lot of it was just kind of making those decisions bit by bit. I knew that uh, I, I wanted her to come from a happy, intact family and not be like so many superheroes are, an orphan whose parents are tragically killed, or uh, you know, whose, whose actions lead to the death of their you know, mom or dad or Uncle Ben, or Uncle Ben, or you know, something like that. That you know, I, I, I wanted this to be um, a, 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 you know, a, a kid from a functionally happy family, um, which is actually really hard to tell in a superhero story where the tendency al is always to go bigger, to make things more tragic, more melodramatic, more out there. And it's, it's sort of harder to tell those quieter, more intimate, more ordinary stories and make them compelling. It's really easy to just sort of, you know, have Lex Luthor come on and blow stuff up. That's the wrong shop, but you know what I mean. Um, and, uh, and so that was really the big challenge, is how do we make her, like, very ordinary life compelling, and how do we make people feel invested in it without killing somebody off, which is the typical superhero affair. So that was really the most difficult part. Sorry, that was a really long answer. We spent a lot of time on this <laughs> during the creation phase. No worries, we can get to everybody, it's fine. <laughs> What was Miss Marvel's origin? Because I know Spider-Man had an origin too. Because it's like how Batman and Superman had an origin and yeah. all that. So her origin is she uh, is out at a party one night, um, sneaking out, and wanders into something called a Terrigen Mist. This will not be on the test. Uh, and what that is is a. It, it's, it's a thing from Marvel history from a certain group of superheroes called the Inhumans who come from, who, who are sort of hybrids from an, an alien species of beings who uh, came and colonized Earth at one point millions of years ago and then left again. But some of us here on Earth have some of their DNA. And when we're exposed to this Terrigen mist, that DNA activates and you get some kind of superpower. So they're kind of like uh, the mutants from the X-Men, except instead of being born with those powers, those, their powers are activated epigenetically through exposure to this mist from their alien homeworld, which is very literary and serious, as, as you can tell. So, yeah. <laughs> it, <laughs> that's the fun about superhero stuff. It doesn't make a ton of sense, but it's fun.
what was the what was the design of the costume when you did with Ms. Marvel? That's a good question. Her costume was designed by the wonderful British artist Jamie McKelvey, who had done the redesign for the now iconic Captain Marvel costume. So it made sense for him to do hers as well. So we, uh, you know, we just kind of told him about what, and when I use the royal we, it just means me and Sana, uh, you know, about what we thought it should incorporate, you know, that like we'd, we'd like it to look kind of like this, but not too much like that. Um, the lightning bolt was an obvious choice because the original 1970s Ms. Marvel costume featured a very prominent lightning bolt. Um, so we just kind of gave all of this information to Jamie and said, work your magic. And he worked his magic. <laughs> so it, it, it came out really well, but I cannot take any credit for it. Hi. Um, so I wasn't, I wasn't really there to see Miss Marvel like when she first came out, but like mm -hmm. I've been more exposed to her through all of the other things that have come out from her. Mm -hmm. uh, I actually read the audiobook. I listened to the audiobook on oh, a trip. Cool. Yeah, and um, I got to see her on TV a couple times with the Marvel Rising that's come out, and now she's got like action figures and dolls for girls. And I'm just uh, especially curious how, uh, how you have taken to seeing how she's become a much larger character, how she's grown into becoming an icon for the Marvel franchise. Uh, I, I still pinch myself, honestly. Like, I'm still waiting to wake up. Like, you know, when we made, when we were creating this character, I never imagined that one day I would wander into Walgreens and there'd be a Funko Pop of her sitting on the shelf next to the toothpaste. Um, you know, it, it, it was just so far outside of my expectation that it's, you know, it's been five, no, it's been almost six years now, and it still hasn't gotten old. Like, every new thing I geek out about, and I'll go to conventions, and people are like, you know, do you have this Lego one yet? And I'm like, no, oh my god, it's the first time I'm seeing it. Um, so, I, I, you know, and that's the other thing. She's gotten so much bigger as kind of a Marvel property that there are a lot of Ms. Marvel-related things that I don't hear about until the internet does. So, you know, people will be on Twitter saying, like, oh, hey, did you hear that there's a new minifig coming out, or they're making, like, a this or that? And I'm like, no, I had no idea. Um, which, which is just, you know, it's, it's really amazing to me that, that that has occurred. Because, honestly, she's, she's like the little tip of the iceberg sticking out above this giant mass of superheroes who never made it. And, uh, you know, who, who did only last for five or ten issues and who now only exist in, like, the library at DC or at Marvel. So to, to see something that I had a hand in created become something that, that, that is that just widely known is, is crazy to me. The, the, the craziest thing was when the first time I took my kids to the park just down the street from our house and there were a bunch of other kids playing there and they were playing Marvel, like the way that I used to pretend to be the X-Men, you know, at, uh, you know, at lunchtime on, on the playground, and the guy I had a crush on would be Wolverine and put pencils between his knuckles and the whole nine yards. Um, but they were doing, you know, they were playing, um, what was it, Ultimate Avengers, from, because they'd seen the Disney Channel cartoon, and they were arguing about who got to be Ms. Marvel, and I'm like, I can't believe this is happening. And these are kids from my block who don't really know what I do. You know, they're just sort of like kids from the neighborhood. And I was standing there like, this is, this is surreal. Uh, now, now it's gotten to a point where my kids are old enough that they will just sort of wander out to people and tap them on the shoulder and be like, did you know that my mother writes Ms. Marvel? Um, but this was sort of when they were a bit younger. So it, 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 it will never get old. You know, if I live to be 100, it will never get old. <laughs> Hello. Hello. Uh, I, I know it's not a contest, but I've been on the Miss Marvel bandwagon since issue one. Thank you. I appreciate you. Yeah, I have every single <laughs> issue, all of the teams, all of the stuff. I even have this, the lightning bolt sticker on the side of my car. I'm not kidding. That's so awesome. my question is, uh, through all of her adventures and battles, what is the, who is your favorite character you had to write alongside Miss Marvel in the Marvel Universe? What was the most fun you've had writing another character? So the most fun that I've ever had writing like a guest star on Ms. Marvel was definitely Wolverine. We did a duo of issues 
where through various mechanisms, I don't even remember how we got him to show up in that, but uh, it, it, was, it was after the series had started to get huge, and instead of just sort of getting marching orders, which is more usual, they're like, you have to use this character this month. They were like, Willow, what character would you like to use this month? Um, and so the first, the first you know, wild card that I pulled out, I was like, I want to do Wolverine. And I told this to Sana. She was like, are you sure? And I was like, yes, I'm 100% sure. And she said, you know, he's really different, and he's, he's kind of like gritty, and you know, like his, his just the vibe that he has is completely different to, to this whole series. And I was like, no, 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 it'll be hysterically funny. Trust me. And she said, okay. Um, so I got to do Wolverine and Ms. Marvel, you know, hunt down giant alligators in the sewers beneath Jersey City. And she gets to sort of like babble on at him about all of this Wolverine fanfic that she's written. And uh, he takes it as well as you would expect. So uh, that was absolutely the most, I mean, of the whole series, that, that may be my favorite two issues that I wrote, especially because at that time, we were in the larger Marvel Universe doing Death of Wolverine. And so he knows that he's dying and she doesn't. And so if you know the wider sort of Marvel Universe stuff that's going on, it's, it's like, it, it, it's kind of, well, it gives me anyway, like a lump in your throat because he's trying to impart to this younger hero lessons that he knows that he will not be able to t pass on because he knows that he's dying. So it was, uh, it, you know, wait, is he back now? Who's reading the current thing? I don't know what's under NDA and what isn't. Oh, thank God. I was just like, oh my God, I'm going to get fired. No, okay, he's back now. <laughs> Nobody stays dead in the Marvel Universe. But, uh, but yeah, that, that was the most fun that I've, I've ever had writing a superhero book. Um, yeah, um, what was it like having to like draw a make a character based off of looking at the realistic versions of their minority groups, especially living in a timeline being that uh, uh, we often look, look up to the m majority characters, but mm -hmm. hardly ever acknowledge <laughs> the minority characters, considering that yeah. you actually inspired me to like recreate a Marvel character and make them into a minority group that isn't as recognized. Like, I, like it's because of you, I want to make a She-Hulk that has a disability. That's amazing. That's, that's great. That's wonderful to hear. Mm -hmm. um, y you know, it was, I, I think, because if, if Sana had not been in charge of the whole project, I would have been really nervous. Because I think you need to have somebody driving the car who can say yes or no, who can sort of veto things that they think are sort of out beyond what the character should, should be, and who can really um, ask people to, to live up to, to the mark and to, to be doing their best work to serve that character as best they can. And it, you know, it's because of that, I think, that she was really adamant about getting Adrian Alfana on board for art for the first couple of arcs of the series because the tendency, I'm sorry to say, not to cast aspersions on anybody, for a long time in superhero comics was to make everybody sort of look like Barbie and then, you know, if they happen to be a minority, if they happen to be black or Latino or North African or Middle Eastern or what have you, you just like the colorist would just sort of alter the palette for their skin and hair tones and that would be it. That's the only way that you would know. Um, you know, but we were all kind of adamant that like, no, she has to look like a Pakistani girl. Like she can't just look like Barbie, you know, with slightly darker skin and darker hair. And Adrian, uh, who is kind of a mad genius, came on and started doing character studies and Sana was like, yep, this is it. This is, this, this is the guy, this is our guy. Um, because he was drawing each of these characters as distinct, as interesting, you can tell even in pencils what uh, you know, ethnicity they are, what background they come from. And you know, that was really, really important, I think, especially to Sana because I think for a long time, comics were kind of doing a disservice to a lot of their minority characters by showing, you know, like everybody's Barbie, we just have different skin tones, and neglecting the fact that there are distinct looks and heights and there are different body shapes and facial features and expressions and all of this stuff that goes into making each character what they are. And so it, 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 uh, it was something that, you know, as an editor, Sano was really, really adamant that we, we needed to get right because this is not going to be one of those books. This is going to be something different. And that, I think, really, really made this stand out from a, among a lot of other books.
is this gonna be more like a Black Widow or like a solo, or is it gonna be like a Spider-Man and Spider-Girl? Like, are you making a Mr. Marvel? Oh, is there gonna be like a Marvel family? Like a, yeah, yeah you know? I'm not sure, we'll see. It, it really depends. I can't, I can't predict what will necessarily happen in the next 10 years or so. I know that she, uh, just being the way she is, if there happened to be another new character who came along who needed a mentor, that uh, that would be something that she would do. So it could be that in a few years we do get like a Mr. Marvel or a, you know, Ms. Marvel Jr. or a whole family of Marvels, the way that we have the Bat Fam and the Super Fam. And uh, I know the X-Men aren't really a fam, but you know, that kind of thing. It's, so it's, it's, it's possible. We'll have to kind of wait and see. I'm, I'm as interested as you are to see kind of where other, other creators are going to take this character. Hello. Um, you converted to Islam? Mm -hmm. And what was your journey like? What led you to Islam? Uh, you know, I, I tell people I tried to be an atheist, I just wasn't very good at it. Um, <clears throat> I'm just, you know, I'm just the sort of person for whom I've, I've always had a certain kind of belief. I, I always uh, related to the universe in a certain way, let's put it that way. But I didn't really have words to describe what that was until until I was about Ms. Marvel's age and started uh, studying religion for the first time. And, um, you know, came across various kinds of Islamic literature and said, oh my God, that's what I am. I didn't know that there were words for this. I didn't know there was a whole religion about this. Um, because I'd, I'd sort of been isolated from, from all of those whole conversations. So uh, I converted, well, I, I would have converted at 18. Um, but 9-11 happened when I was 18. And it sort of threw me into this kind of crisis of, are, are they right? Is that what this is? Is this, am I wrong? Have, has all the stuff that I've read, was all of that wrong? Who's, who's right? Who is telling the truth about what Islam is? And it took another two years after that before I talked to enough people, read enough things, and sort of wrestled within myself and came to a place where I was like, nope, nope, this, this is still what I am. <laughs> you know, right or wrong, this is still what I am. And so I converted at 20 as a university student and, um, and kind of ran away to Egypt to study and to learn Arabic and uh, the rest is history. I took all my comics with me and uh, many of them are still there <laughs> at, uh, at, at my apartment in Cairo. And, um, and yeah, you know, at the time I thought I was like, there are no other Muslims who read comics. It's, it's really just me. I'm just, I'm just going to be that weirdo my whole life. Um, but now there are so many, not just Muslim comic book readers, but Muslim comic book creators, that I can't keep track of them all. It's, it's incredible to see the amount of artistry and wordsmithery and creativity coming out of the, especially the American Muslim community right now. And uh, it's, it's, it's just been amazing <laughs> for me, not just as a writer, but as a fan, to see all of that happening. Hi. Hello. I'm curious about her uh, Civil War II arc and uh -huh. the decision process in taking a young character, especially a young superhero, into a world of gray, one involving her idol. Mm -hmm. um, could you share some of the decision and the discussions involving that? Yeah, that was a tense room, gaming all that out. Um, and, y you know, when, when people started discussing Civil War II as a big event, for the entire Marvel Universe. And I was like, oh gosh, we're gonna have to do this. You know, we're gonna have to do one of these. Which means that, you know, Kamala is gonna have to come up against someone that she's really looked up to in the past, um, who has in the, I don't wanna get into too much detail, but in the Civil War II arc done something kind of morally ambiguous. And so, you know, what I tried, the way I tried to think of it was, we all learn, usually too late, that our idols have feet of clay that the, you know, kind of the grown-ups that we look up to as kids end up being flawed human beings. They're usually not sort of the perfect, flawless people that we thought that they were. 
And then we kind of have to wrestle with how do I define myself now that I know this person that I looked up to and who I maybe modeled myself on is not as perfect as I thought they were. What does that mean? How do I go off on my own and how do I challenge them when I think that they've done something wrong? It's really, really difficult to talk to, you know, to, to sort of stand up to somebody who you've admired for a long time and tell them, no, I think this is wrong. I'm not going to do what it is that you want me to do. I, you know, I have to forge my own path. So I, you know, I think for Ms. Marvel, it was really kind of a growing up experience. Uh, and it, it, it kind of served to set her apart a little bit. She's not now just in Captain Marvel's shadow. She's her own person, and she's making her own decisions. Uh, you know, she, she's not a sidekick. She has her own legacy. And when the legacy that she saw herself as being part of becomes complicated or, or somehow tarnished, that she has to forge her own path. And that's something that I think we all go through at some point, learning that our mentors, our parents, the people we look up to in pop culture and sports um, do things that let us down or that go contrary to what we believe to be true. And, uh, and then we have to figure out, who am I without this person? So that's what that ended up being. Hello. Um, I was just wondering, do you have any words of like advice for people trying to go into like the comic book industry? Just because. Yeah, uh, as a as a writer or as an artist or both. Um, either I'm, mm -hmm. I personally would want to go into art because I've always kind of had a talent for that. But uh -huh. just either. Yeah. Uh, Art is a, is a bit more straightforward of a process than getting into comic book writing as a writer. Um, you know, once you have a portfolio that you think is pretty good, that you think you're pretty proud of, it represents your best work, uh, then you can, in some cases, digitally submit your, you know, uh, your portfolio, your online portfolio to a publisher. Some or most publishers will do portfolio reviews of actual physical portfolios at local conventions. There are editors who are pretty much on the road all throughout convention season for the express purpose of doing portfolio reviews. So you just sort of find, um, you know, the convention that happens to be closest for you or most convenient for you to get to and you do that. Um, and, uh, and occasionally, you know, if you have a solid digital portfolio, you have a Tumblr, you have a website, you have a whatever, and you're on social media and you're amplifying your work and people are into it, occasionally the publishers will come to you and seek you out and say, hey, you know, we would like to talk about working with you. Um, writing is a bit more difficult and complicated uh, because it's arguably less vital to comics than, than the art is, you know. Um, I think most artists have a sense of sequential storytelling even without a script to work from, just kind of on their own. But uh, a writer without an artist has just written a script without pictures at all. So for writers, every story about how they got in is different. Like if you talk to Mark Wade, if you talk to um, Brian Bendis, if you talk to Brian Azzarello, any of the Brians, Gail Simone, anybody in the comic book industry who writes, they will give you a different story about how they got in. Sometimes it's they were in film and they you know, wanted to do something different and so they came over. Sometimes it's they were in editorial and they were an assistant editor and they decided, you know what, I wanted to try my hand at writing. Um, in my case, I worked briefly as a college student for almost no money at one of the very first digital comic book companies which at the time tanked because this was pre-iPad and nobody wanted to read comics on their giant bulky iMacs. Um, nevertheless, they tried. And through that, I got to meet a lot of artists, writers, editors in the industry. And so, um, you know, I, could, I, I sort of picked the brains of some of the older writers and asked for advice about scripting. And then when I had a script that I thought did not suck, uh, I had people that I could send it to because I, you know, had, had sort of met them through this, this digital comic book company, uh, which had crashed and burned. But, um, but yeah, so it, it really is for writing, it, there's not a whole ton of good advice. And what I really hope happens 
and you guys should lobby for this at your you know local community college art school university whatever it is um, comic book writing is not taught academically almost anywhere except for a couple of places and if there was a straightforward way to study it I think there would be a much more straightforward way to submit the, because the comic book companies would know, oh, there's this pipeline of people who have a solid academic background in how to write comics, as opposed to those of us from my generation who had to teach ourselves because there was nothing, no tutorials, no YouTube videos, nothing. Literally what you had to do is take your favorite comic, mark it up, number all of the panels on the page, and sort of reverse engineer how to write a script. Um, and I, I think if the comic book scripting process was less opaque, then the comic book writer hiring process would become less opaque. So, yeah, lobby your local schools. <laughs> so I'll, I'll for a lot of time just on behalf of all of us at Moraine Valley, we want to give you a small token oh to say thank you. Thank you so much. These last two days have been so great. And, um, thank you. And, thank and, you. And you know, um, <clears throat> Kamala has been with us for this whole year. <laughs> so even though you've been here two days, you may not know your work has touched us and, and fostered conversations and opened up a great dialogue. So thank you for all that you've done and your graciousness and um, your time. So how about thank a round of so applause? Much. Thank you all. Thank you for coming. It's a pleasure.